Wonderful music choices this morning, and it's great to hear your voices sing out these praises to our Lord. And the theme has been obvious, and that's that we are looking towards heaven and rejoicing in what is in front of us as God's redeemed people. I'm, my name is Jim Newcomer. If I haven't been able to meet you this morning, I know we have several visitors here with us, and I do hope to meet you after the service. I have the joy of serving as one of the two pastors here, and uh, I welcome you. And I also want to say if you're our, uh, uh, one of our first-time visitors here, we have a special gift for you, um, and we'd delight to give that to you. If you. After the service, if you go out in the lobby and take a quick right, you'll bump into the information desk, and we have uh, a gift there for you and some information about the church and uh, I hope that you'll take time to make that little, little right turn before you leave after the service. And let me just go on record of saying um, that you're always invited to return to worship with us. And I'll tell you what, we would love to answer any questions you have about not just our church, but any questions you have about the Bible, any questions you have about eternal life, right? These are important questions. And we want you to get answers, even today. And uh, that's our prayer. We're so glad that you're with us. Well, your Bibles are open to Ecclesiastes chapter 1 with me this morning. And as you turn there, I just want to highlight two announcements. This first announcement is for the men under my hearing, or, or in, under the voice of my, under me, listening right now. I can't think of it. Uh, and uh, all the guys age 15 and older, you are invited to our final men's ministry um, activity of this season. It's going to be coming up on May 3rd, and it's going to be a bonfire out at the Collier home off of uh, Merritt Road. Uh, but the sign-up for that um, starts today. So that sign-up list is at the information desk, and there's no expected um, price on this. Uh, you don't have to, it doesn't take a fee uh, to attend. And if you've never been to any of our men's ministries, even if this is your first time visiting our church, you're invited, guys. And uh, we just need to know you're coming, so please make sure you get signed up for this final activity of Season 5. And also, it's, it's exciting for our church family, it's exciting for our deacons and their wives to, three times a year, change the pace up a little bit on a Sunday. And this is one of those Sundays today. We're having today what's called our Grace Gatherings. And it's just where our, our deacons... Uh, make provisions for their deacon care groups and invited guests to, to participate in either a coffee or a meal. Some of these meet at homes, some in backyards, some around the campus here. And uh, it's a time of fellowship. It's a time of discussing uh, the preaching that's been going on, either this morning's sermon or recent sermons about Peter or some other things that might be on the heart of your, your deacon. And uh, because we're doing this and they're spread out around the area and around this campus throughout today, this afternoon and this evening, we will not be having our normal 5 o'clock service. Now, our deacons met this past Thursday and they were racking their brains in the meeting. Who are some non-members who have been attending here fairly regularly recently because we want them to get invited as well. Not, it's not just for our membership. And, uh, and, and they've done their best to, to brainstorm uh, but I, they're worried that they missed one of you. And so I'm going to ask our deacons to stand right now, just for a moment. Just stand up where you are, deeks. We got one. We got one in the back. We got one in the balcony. Here, here, here. Great. And then Dave Dietz is uh, off teaching uh, children's church right now, so he can't be in the room. If you have not, if, if you're a non-member and you're just attending and you enjoy the church, 
um, and you haven't been invited to a deacon care group uh, grace gathering this afternoon, see one of these guys, except for Carrie. Carrie's grace gathering was last night. Sit down, Carrie. Okay. <laughs> He's just smirking, waiting for me to remember that. Um, Lord bless your heart. Okay, so um, if you want to get invited and you'd like to attend a grace gathering, see one of these guys who is standing up. They would love to invite you and drink coffee with you. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this gathering, this wonderful um, gathering of believers, preaching of your word. I pray that you would give them faith in this hour. Give them repentance from their sin so that they may call upon you and be saved. And they no longer have to fear death, not just the exit from this life, but the judgment that follows. Lord, direct all of our attentions away from distractions now as we open your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I don't know, maybe it's something that all high school soccer coaches do, but mine was no different than probably Mark Meredith and other coaches here at Calvary Christian Academy, Calvary Christian School. And that's this, after school, after class, before... um, soccer practice, our coach would have a meeting with us and then send us out to the ball fields for practice. And he'd always say the same thing. As soon as you get out there, guys, give me a mile. Give me a mile. I hated those words. Because that meant we had to do four laps around the field, a path that was cut through the field that circled around our our soccer complex, our soccer field there in Clarkston. Give me a mile. It was four long laps. I knew why the coach was doing it. He was doing it so that we could clear our minds from math. We could clear our our anxiety from studying history. He did it so that we would run out the silliness in our heads of that particular day in high school. And what he wanted to do, and I knew he was doing this, is he he was creating pain in our legs and our stomach so that we would forget this, all these distractions in our head. He's making something else hurt. So that we'd pay attention to him and to soccer practice. I was not a runner then, I'm not a runner now. And that's funny, because I played halfback, and you're supposed to run five miles in a game if you're doing your job as a halfback. But I was distracted, I was kicking a ball during the game. I hated running just for running's sake. So what I'd do is I'd distract myself a little bit. I would... I would run with a buddy and talk all the way around. Or I'd, I'd get a song fixed in my head and just keep that song going for the duration of the run. Or sometimes I would distract my run by, by planning the weekend activities and what I wanted to do with my buddies or maybe some fishing I wanted to do up in Clarkston. And it usually worked because I would be distracted and lost in my thoughts or in a conversation And that that distraction would actually bear the fruit of suddenly jolting me as I came around the third lap and I saw the fourth lap in front of me and soon I would be crossing the finish line of the fourth lap. 
the distraction worked. And it was great. The distractions just kind of occupied me until I was almost done. Until I was in the final stretch of the pain and the cramps. I could see the end. You know, that wasn't just true for running before soccer practice when I was in high school. And it's not just true about life that we can get distracted as we go through life. And before we know it, where has life gone? And now we see the finish line approaching. But that illustration also is helpful as we look at this entire book of Ecclesiastes as a series. This winter, we have set our sights as a church family on Sunday nights on the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. It's been a Sunday night service, a Sunday night series, and I just want to take a moment and thank the men of our church who have contributed to this study. We're doing this on purpose to develop teachers, to develop leaders, and the men of our church to make them press into an area of study they may have never done that, to make them listen differently to others as they they bring the fruits of their study every week. But it's been a great, great 11 weeks up to this point of sermons throughout Ecclesiastes. So I want to thank Dave Dietz and Steve Thurman and Ben Cantrell and Brian Wilson and Andy Martin, Phil Grimet and Jonathan Hibbets and David Jesse and Carrie Zellner and Pastor Michael. For their 11 installments, their 10 installments, I did the introduction to the book and I'm here doing the conclusion today, but I appreciate these men. But I have quite a challenge in front of me this morning during the rest of this hour. And the challenge is this. Because we have Awana on Sunday nights, because we have youth group on Sunday nights, and because typically we have a much lower attendance in Sunday evening attendance, more so than on Sunday morning. Actually, only about a fourth or a third are in this room in the evening service compared to the morning service. And we can talk about that another time. But I realized this morning, for these reasons, that for most of you, listen, this is the only sermon or maybe the only the second sermon you have heard from this series. And this is the last sermon of the series. That's a challenge. You say, is it a real challenge? And I'll admit, no. No, not after what I have studied in chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes. Turn over to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, my assigned text for this morning. This isn't really a challenge, even though this may be perhaps even your first sermon from this series. Because what Solomon does here, what the author does here, is he captures here at the end of Ecclesiastes, he captures and reviews, listen, every major theme of the first 11 chapters. In one way or another, their shadow falls across this final chapter of Ecclesiastes. This flyover is a review of the whole book. That's what chapter 12 does for us. It's like this. Let's say I want to take my wife on a date, and we usually like to walk, or we like to walk three miles when we get a chance. Merritt Road, we own that road as far as walking it, and the the poodle does too. The poodle goes with us. Um, I know I lose man points on that, but uh, it's still our road, fresh air, farmland, everything. But let's say Lori and I are walking down Merritt Road, and here in the spring, and we look over 
into a field, and there's several fields there that are not corn or crops, and it's just a wild field. And, 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 and my wife notices that there's so many different types of wildflowers blooming, and different things blooming that bloom in spring that won't be here in the summer or the fall. And she says, it's so nice right now, hon, let's walk through that field and look at all the pretty plants and colors. And the scary thing is, it's a big field, and there's a lot of different types of flowers and things that are pretty. As you can tell by my language and my face right now, I don't know the names of all that stuff. I don't know what I'm looking at. I'm like, oh, that's, that's, that's really yellow. Yeah. Ah, yeah, purple. That's, that's really, really nice. And then I can go through blues, reds, whatever, whites. And it's just like, as we walk through this field, surrounded by this color, there's repetitions of the color as it's a wild field, and some plants that are growing right here are growing over there, and everything's pretty, and it's kind of spread out, and it's intermixed with other stuff. And to be honest, the field is intimidating to me. I can't make sense of it. But if my wife, on the way back home, goes through the field and collects one of each of those colors and creates a bouquet, and takes it home with us, and puts it in a vase in the kitchen, now she can explain each one to me. I'm not overwhelmed by the mass volume of it in the field, but she picked the high points and brought them home, and she can help me understand those. It's kind of what the writer of Ecclesiastes is doing here at the end of his book. You may have, even if you've been in some of these earlier studies on the Sunday evening series, you may have watched us struggle through some very difficult chapters. May it even be put this way, intimidating chapters, dark chapters. And there seems to have been some repetition, but no real discernible order. And, and it's just quite intimidating. But what the author is doing here is he's saying, before we close, I want to gather a sampling of the major flowers so that you can take them home and study them and let them change you. That's what the writer here is doing. As I studied this, it was so compelling to me that I have no hesitation to preaching it in the morning service this morning because I want you to take it home. You take home chapter 12, you take home the book of Ecclesiastes with you. So, I love what the author is doing here. I do believe it's Solomon. Um, but I, the author here is, is showing us this thing called the trip, the journey of life. And he's showing it to us this way. He's saying, look, this thing called life is a trip. It's a journey you're on. And for these 11 chapters, he has been showing you this journey on a map. Where you are now, where you need to go, and where you don't want to go. But as we come here to the end of Ecclesiastes, he's done telling us about the trip. By the time we finish chapter 12, he's told us all about the trip. He's folded up the map and put it in his pocket. And he's telling us now, now, turn the key and get moving. That's what he's doing here. Now, as we come here to this last portion of Ecclesiastes, there are a few structural notes I need to point out to you. First of all, if I'm going to preach chapter 12 to you in its entirety, I need to back up a few verses because chapter 12 and the flow of thought here starts, really, in chapter 11, verse 7. 
So that's where we'll start our attention. And as I read in the beginning in chapter 1, the writer starts with this note, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanities of vanities, all is vanity. But he'll also end on that same theme. The teacher will end in verse 8 of chapter 12 with these words, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. You know what we call that, those are bookends. Uh, what he starts with, he finishes in chapter 12, verse 8. After you finish verse 8, we're going to see from a literary perspective, a literary device, we're going to change speakers, though I don't believe we change authors. I, I believe Solomon here is being very careful and crafty with how he, he, he uh, steps outside of the teacher role and now makes some observations before he says farewell with the final verses. As a matter of fact, we're going to see in chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, that he intentionally has laid out exactly everything the way he wants it to, to have a certain effect. We'll see that in just a moment. You say, what's my big idea? What's my theme for this morning? It's a pretty straightforward one as we come to the beginning of the end, is what I call chapter 12. The big idea is this. Since we're talking about death today, Prepare for then, now. Prepare for your demise from this, your exit from this world. Prepare for that then. What will happen to you then? Prepare for it now. And I think Solomon is going to give us, if I can word it this way, six reminders for finishing well. You may want to jot these down. Six reminders for finishing well. And we'll go through these at a good clip. First of all, enjoy the journey. That's what he's saying. This is nothing new. He's been saying this all along, right since, I believe, the beginning of the book. Enjoy the journey. Look at chapter 11 and verse 7. He says, The light is pleasant, and it's good for the eyes to see the sun. Remember, as we've studied Ecclesiastes, when we see anything under the sun, that means we're alive. We're enjoying life. This light in verse 7 means that you and I are alive. We're in the sun. Verse 8, indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all. And let him remember the days of darkness, that's death. For they will be many, and in other words, the days that lead up to your death, there will be a dying in most cases involved that will bring difficulty before the final death. Remember the days of darkness, for they will be many, and everything that is to come will be futility. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood. And follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Yet, know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. So remove grief and anger from your heart. And put away pain from your body. Because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. His first reminder to us as we finish this book this morning is this. Enjoy the journey. Enjoy the journey. This is not a secular concept. He's serious. There's a few words that I just read 
uh, in the opening verses of this final section, starting with verse 7, you saw the word in the translation I'm using, pleasant, twice. You saw the word rejoice twice. You saw the concept of, of, of uh, your ways and how it rejoices your heart. You saw the concept of follow what your eyes see. Follow what your heart desires. And if there's anything detrimental, psychologically, remove anger and anxiety from you. Don't drag through life with that. It's some help. And then he says, don't introduce things that, um, that carelessly bring harm to you. Remove painful things. These are key words. He's saying, hey man, it's a journey to be enjoyed. This thing called life. And by the way, this isn't the first time he's been directing our attention to this. If you've been paying attention, you've been hearing him all along call life, listen, a gift, a joy, what God has given to be enjoyed. I want to remind you of these refrains. For example, let me show you a few. Hold your finger here and go to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Remember this one? He's going to start out with these words. There's nothing better than. That means better pay attention. Ecclesiastes 2, look at verse 24. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? Look at chapter 3. You'll see this same concept again. Chapter 3, verse 9. Chapter 3, verse 9. What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? I have seen the task which God has given to the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. It's to keep their attention. And so much of that will be joy. Drop down a few verses. Verse 12. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. Look at this. This is the gift of God. Stay in this chapter. Look at verse 22. I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot. He doesn't take long. You get to chapter 5, and he repeats the refrain yet again. Look at chapter 5, verse 18. Here's what I have seen to be good and fitting. It's to eat, to drink, and to enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life, which God has given him, for this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God, for he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. Let me show you just two more. Chapter 8, chapter 8, verse 15, you see this refrain again. Enjoy the journey. Chapter 8, verse 15, so I commended pleasure, for there's nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry, and this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. 
And then, of course, you come to chapter 9, verse 7. Then go then, eat your bread in happiness. Drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time. Let not oil be lacking on your head. And I love verse 9. Enjoy wife with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life which he has given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. It's been a difficult book in so many places. It has had a heavy impact and footprint in our thinking that has walked out of Sunday night with us in deep into our weeks as we've contemplated it. But we also remember that throughout even the most difficult of passages, it's been punctuated consistently with the reminder of what we see here at the end. Enjoy the journey. Life itself is a gift. Real joy in life can happen. It's not a facade. Common grace makes it available to every image bearer of God. Significant joy is a reality. After our men's activity yesterday morning, the shooting activity, I, uh, I had just about an hour and a half that I could give to, to uh, enjoy something in life too. Not that I didn't enjoy the shooting, that was fun. I wouldn't want to ever mess with Pastor Michael. I know that. I learned that yesterday. But I uh, jumped in the car. I was kind of in a hurry, and, and I drove over to Novi. And it was the, um, what was it called, the Michigan Knife Expo. Here comes your knife illustration this week. You ready for it? And, and I pretty much was just shy of a sprint going down every aisle at the Suburban Showcase place. And, and it was an antique gun show, but also um, all types of not only antique knives, but custom-made knives. Just fun. I didn't buy anything uh, for myself. I just enjoy going to the, to the museum, you know. And, uh, but I noted some things. There's certain things that I do look for that I really enjoy leaning into and looking at and handling. But as I went by one table, it was a man probably around 70, 70 years old. He had his own table there. We're, we'll call his name Jeff. And, and, and Jeff was talking to some other customers when I went by. And, I, and what Jeff did, what his thing was is he bought expensive knives, pocket knives, fixed blade knives, folding knives, and then he added his personal touch of engraving and milling designs on it and, and just made beautiful knives even more, if this is a word, beautifuler. I mean, it was really, he, he, I don't know how he did it, it was stunning, his work he was doing. And he was just a nice, mild man, just talking to the people that, as long as they wanted that, that it stopped. And I just was looking at his work. And, and then I noticed something over on the corner of the table. And it definitely wasn't a knife. It was a CD with his picture on it. There was a little sign by it saying, please take one, free. I picked that CD up. I turned it over. And it's all gospel songs with him singing. And I know what he's doing. He's doing direction three. He's using his hobby, something he really enjoys, to be an occasion where he can also share his faith. So I finished my tour of the, of the showroom floor, and then I went back towards him, and I wanted to see if he was by himself, and he was. And I introduced myself. It's Jeff. My name's Jim. What's your story? And he looked at me, expecting me to ask about knives, and I said, I want to hear about your knives, but I want to hear about your CD over here. And he just beamed. 
And as we talked, that's exactly what he's hoping to do. He, he just likes engraving and, and filing knives and creating valuable pieces of art. It's just something he enjoys. But he uses what he enjoys as a platform for the gospel. And we talked through the gospel. He knows our Lord just as much as we know our Lord. And I was just reminded, enjoy, enjoy the journey. Everyone has a thing, like the Puritan Ernie Bowman used to say all the time. Everyone's, every, everybody's got a thing. That's by design. Enjoy what talent God has given to you. Enjoy your vocation. Enjoy your hobbies. Your life is indeed a treasure trove of true gifts and joys to embrace. Relish them. Celebrate them. Proclaim them. Anticipate them. It's okay. But remember that it's not a mindless party. Remember that as you enjoy the journey. That brings us to the second reminder we have in chapter 12, the end of 11 and 12. Embrace the tension. So what do you mean? Well, when, we, when, when, when Solomon calls us to enjoy the journey, he's not calling us to a hedonistic binge. He's not talking about a Christian liberty burnout. His call to enjoy the journey is a call to keep your eyes open, keep your head up, keep your guard ready, have situal awareness, and be on high alert. You say, why? Well, we've met a lot of bad guys in the book of Ecclesiastes, a lot of quote-unquote bad people, haven't we? We've met the foolish, we've met the ungrateful, we've met the harsh, we've met the hoarders, we've met harlots, we've met employers, we've met kings, we've met laborers, and we've met some rough people in those categories. But don't miss this. The biggest villain in the book of Ecclesiastes is our own heart. Because your heart and my heart has a gravity towards foolishness. It has a pull towards excess. It has a tendency to blind. And our hearts move us towards idolatry, worshiping and reveling ultimately in something that's empty. And so what we see here as we come to the end of this book is there is a tension, there are guardrails, if you will. A few statements that the author gives to us to protect us from ourselves. Old J.C. Ryle put it this way, I agree with him, sin and the devil will always find helpers in our hearts. He's right. So mind your guardrails. These guardrails or these tensions keep you in your lane as a God-fearer, as a believer. You say, what are the tensions? There's three of them I'd like to call your attention to. Again, look at verse 7 of chapter 11. The light's pleasant. It is good for the eyes to see the sun. If indeed a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all. Let, them, let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. The first tension is this. It has to do with this, the brevity of life versus the longevity of death. 
as the Christian Standard Bible Study Bible, the CSB Study Bible says in their helpful notes, and by the way, in the book of Ecclesiastes, I read this statement, life is short and death is long. That's a tension. Because sometimes we we live this life as if this life is long. I have all these years left. If I don't get run over on Ecor Street, I have a lot of years left. And eternity just seems not only far away, but it seems short. At least I'm living it that way. But he's saying, no, no, no. There's a tension here. This life you're enjoying is short, and it's the eternity that is long. It forces us to ask the question, how can I live each day, listen, as if it's my last day? As we enjoy the journey, as we enjoy the gifts that God's given to us, before we dive in mindlessly and carelessly, Let's remember, this may be the last day. As I like to tell my students, none of us know how old we are. We really don't. There's a second tension here. And I see this, look at the end of verse 8, or just verse 8 again. If a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all. Let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. And everything that's to come will be emptiness, futility. What's the second tension? It's the tension between the fullness of life and the emptiness of death. It forces the question, as I'm on this journey enjoying it, is there a way to deepen my walk while I'm alive? In the midst of everything I'm enjoying on the journey, the most important thing in my enjoyment is to develop wisdom. Is there a way to deepen my walk while alive. As the Nelson Bible commentary says, we get old too soon and wise too late. The wisdom is needed today and this tension keeps us in our lane and our journey, but there's a third tension I want to direct your attention to and it's this freedom of life in contrast to the slavery of judgment. Verse 9, rejoice young man during your childhood and let your heart be Pleasant during the days of young manhood and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. Remove grief and anger from your heart. Put away pain from your body because childhood and the prime of life is fleeting. What do you mean by the freedom of life in contrast to the slavery of judgment? What's this tension? This tension that I see here in verses 9 and 10 forces the question... What consequences of my choices today will outlive me? Think about it. Yes, enjoy the journey. But if I'm enjoying the journey in a, in a careless way, or as if it's the end game in itself, I may be making choices that will outlive me, that will show up at what the author continues to refer to as the judgment. It's a tension that sobers us, literally, on our journey. So, enjoy the journey, embrace the tension. But someone may ask, well, how long is this journey with these tensions? How long is it? My answer to that is shorter than you may realize. And that brings us to the third reminder. Know the indicators My heart sank yesterday as I came home from the shooting event and then the knife thing, and I still made it home by lunchtime. And 
I walk eventually up to my bedroom to put my stuff away from the day and to get back into study. And, and, I, and I heard what I hate hearing in my house, and you do too. I heard a chirp in my bedroom. It wasn't a bird. It's the, fire, it's the smoke detector over my bed on the high part of the ceiling, which means I can't stand on, stand on the bed to reach it. I've got to bring a ladder upstairs and, and get up there when my wife's not around because I'm going to stand on top of the ladder to get that 9-volt battery out. I just don't like that. You know, it's unfun. And, and I'm like, I know what that means. That thing chirps, and then it won't chirp for a while. And then it will chirp again. There's no pattern to how it's chirping. But once the chirps happen, mark it down, over the course of time, they'll get closer together to bug you because the end of the 9-volt battery's life is imminent. That's what the chirp's all about. I have the indicator. I have the chirps. I know the end is coming when I hear those chirps. My question to you is this. Are you beginning to hear chirps that you might be closer to the end than you realize? I don't know when it would come, but are the chirps starting to show up? Are they starting to show up in your mirror? Are they starting to show up in your daily routines and responsibilities that used to be easy? Are they showing up in problems you're having with relationships? When I say know the indicators, I'm saying watch for the signs, listen for the chirps. God has in his mercy built in some chirps in our lives to remind us that we're heading towards one destination. And the more chirps, the closer you're getting. And that's what I see here as we come into chapter 12. Look at verses 1 and 2. Remember also the Creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. You know what they're saying? Barring a tragic accident and a sudden death, our approaching death is going to have warning signals, warning chirps. And he says it's not just going to be days before you die, it could be years before you die. But they're reminding you it's coming. And then he gives us some amazing statements. You say, well, what are some of the indicators? Well, first of all, look in verse 3. It says... In the day that the watchmen of the house tremble. What does that mean? The watchmen of the house. Uh, uh, most commentators would believe that this is how you would defend yourself. It's going to look at your body as an old house here for a little bit in these verses. And the defenders of your house would be the strength of your chest and your arms. The first chirp you hear is this. Your arm or defense weakness. You start losing your strength especially in your arms. In verse 3, again, it says, And the mighty men stoop. What is this? This is referring to your leg and your core uh, developing an immobility. It's harder to move. We're going to talk more about that in a few characteristics here down the road. But right here, your largest muscle group begins to atrophy. Things you could do, you can no longer do anymore. Uh, where you used to be smiling and humming and listen to a podcast when you stoop. Now when you stoop, there's moans and tears. And then you have to figure out how to get back up. That's what we're talking about here. Stay in verse 3 and it says, um, 
and uh, it says, the grinding ones stand idle because they are few. The grinding ones, we're talking about your dental work here. There's dental decay. These are your grinders, and they really slow down because you've lost a bunch, and the ones you do have don't come together. You say, what else do we have here? It says, and those who look through the windows grow dim. This is talking about vision decay. Talking about windows like an old house. These are, these, are your, these are your eyes and things are growing dim. Oh, it gets better. Let's go into verse 4. And the doors on the street are shut as the sound of the grinding mill is low. Some people think, well, that's another dental reference. I don't think so. I think this is talking about communication struggles. For one reason or another, you don't communicate as smoothly and as proficiently as you, you have earlier in your life. The doors on the street. I like in other wisdom literature and scripture, for example, in Job chapter 41, God himself refers to Leviathan's mouth as his doors. So there's communication struggles here. Some even push this a little farther and say, this is not just an issue of not being able to communicate like you used to be able to, but not even to be able to conduct business with expertise like you used to be able to. So communication struggles. Oh, there's more. It says, and one will arise at the sound of the bird. What is this? You know. I didn't have to put this one up. Your sleep gets real light. You know, I, I can sleep with earplugs in and still hear a car drive by outside and wake me up. I'm noticing this in my 50s. And it says, and all the daughters of song will sing softly. What are we going to do with this one? This one's an entertaining one. This, is, this again, uh, is, is pointing out hearing decay. But it can even go a little bit further. Um, the co- concept of music is here, and, and some even go so far to say you can't hear the entertainment you used to enjoy, and neither, neither can you participate in it. Interesting. Oh, there's more. Look at verse 5. Furthermore, men are afraid of a high place. What's this? There's a growing fear of falling, right? Why are you not? You're all looking at me like, yeah, we know all this. You know, from personal experience, right? It's real. Another one, there's a growing anxiety, just a general worry that, the, that describes you. It says there are terror. You have a... Um, you are afraid of terrors on the road. When you go out and about in life on the roads, there's just a, a newfound constant worry that seems to envelop you. How about the next one, the almond tree blossoms? What's this? When an almond tree blossoms, it turns white. Guess what this means? This means your hair. Your hair either turns white or it turns loose, as Mark Lauer used to say. Someone, used, someone once told me I'm, 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 I have a... I'm losing my hair. And I said, no, I just have a tall face. Um, I heard someone else say, uh, someone said they were losing hair, and they said, oh, yeah, no, it's a brain, it's a solar power for brain power. Hey, it, goes, it gets better. Look at here in verse 5. The grasshopper drags himself along. Now, the grasshopper is a very light insect with lots of joints on it. And, it. and it not only can crawl fast, but it can leap and fly. But now... This featherweight insect with all this potential is dragging its, itself. What is this? 
This is movement and joint pain. It's what it is. And then there's one more, and the caperberry is ineffective. Careful with this one, and I will be. A caperberry was taken back in that day to serve two purposes. Number one, the consumption of the caperberry would help, they believed, increase your appetite for more food. But also it was believed that the caperberry was helpful in elevating your desire for intimacy, physical intimacy. And it says the caperberry is ineffective. What's this? Just the loss of appetite. I could put appetite in quotes, mom and dad. I'm trying to be careful. But this is everything from food to intimacy. And probably pointing more towards the intimacy part. There's a loss of ability or desire. How'd you do on the quiz? And remember, the author says This can start showing up days or even years before you're called home. These are chirps. Or if I can change metaphors, these are lights on the dashboard. And I want to argue right now that chirps like this or lights like this on the dashboard are a mercy to you. It's a jolting grace Every moan of pain, every sleepless night that keeps your mind from getting wrapped up just in the joys of the journey and remembering you are heading towards a destination. And before you know it, on your journey, the end pops up on the horizon. You've been driving through Kansas, all these flatlands. You've been driving through the eastern half of Colorado all these flat lands. But as you approach Denver, suddenly on the horizon are the mountains you've been wanting to see the whole trip. Only on this trip, there's no reverse gear. And that brings us to the fourth reminder. Understand the finality. Understand the finality. Verse 5, after the caperberry. The writer says, for man goes to his eternal home, while mourners go about in the streets. Look at verse 6. Remember him. That's in italics. That means we're still talking about the creator that you're to remember. Remember the creator before, and then he gives us these pictures. The silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed. The pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel at the cistern is crushed. There are two life symbols in verse 6. One is a symbol of light and the other is a symbol of water. One is a symbol of light. Uh, It's a container, if you will. A a golden bowl that would hold oil and, and a source of light that would be burning in it. And it's destroyed. The light is gone. And the other picture of life is of water. It talks about the pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel at the cistern, the source of the the water itself, is crushed. The light is gone. The water is dried. It's just gone. 
There was all this activity and all this benefit, and then now that it's all crushed, it's not there anymore. It, there's nothing coming from there. It's completely gone, and there's no return, and there's just a stillness. The author of Ecclesiastes has been working to this point of verse 6. This is the end of this life. And there's a finality to it that is jolting. Just like we read in Psalm 89, 48, what man can live and not see death? Or Psalm 104, verse 29, you hide your face, they are dismayed, Lord. You take away their spirit, they expire and return to the dust. And that's exactly what he says in verse 7 of chapter 12. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. And since we're talking about the creator in verse 1 and reminded of him in verse 6, this takes us back to Genesis 1 and 2 where we see we were taken from dust and we will return to dust. Even the New Testament says in Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed for men to die and after this comes the judgment. Erwin Lutzer, the writer and pastor, wrote these words. The statistics on death are impressive. So far it is one out of one. And he's right. And then now, after verse 6, what Ecclesiastes has been looking forward to and talking about in chapter 3, chapter 8, chapter 9, it's come. There's stillness. They're gone. And for effect, so is the teacher, the lecturer. Because when we cross over into verse 9, the lecturer, the teacher, is gone on paper. And starting with verse 9, we're back with the narrator for the final observations. And he here is where we find our fifth reminder. Treasure the revelation. Okay? Look at verse 9. In addition to being a wise man... The preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered and searched out and arranged many proverbs. I believe the author to be Solomon, and I think that verse 9 and verse 10 are talking about how carefully he's crafted this, and it's a literary device even in that day of of changing speakers, even as it's the same writer. I believe that would apply here. Verse 10, the preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. This guy's working hard. He's leaning in. You have a teaching. You have a pondering, a searching, an arranging, a seeking again, and a writing. But then verse 11 throws the covers off of who was doing all this really behind the scenes though. The words of wise men are like goads and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. They're given by one shepherd. But beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. What do we do with all this? I'll tell you what you do with this. You want to know what to do with verses 9 through 12? You find the high point of that section, the high point of that unit of thought. What is the high point? It's not the debate of the earthly author. It's the clarity of the ultimate author of the book of Ecclesiastes. And you have it there at the end of verse 11. They are given, these words are given by one 
capital S, shepherd. You want to know who the, the ultimate author is of Ecclesiastes? God himself. This whole journey, he's been telling you how to get ready to meet him. That's why I say treasure the revelation. See, what do you mean? If we have found the high point of 9 through 12, then it makes sense of the rest and gives us a high view of Scripture whenever God speaks. Say, what do you mean by that? We, as believers in Christ, are stewards of God's revelation, not just the Old Testament, which the writer of Ecclesiastes wouldn't have even had the entire Old Testament yet. We have the entire Old Testament, and we have the entire New Testament. We understand the new covenant. We have great details that we know are coming, not only in this life, but in the next for us. So what do we learn about Scripture and Revelation? His word alone gives us knowledge. He says, he has taught the people knowledge, verse 9. Knowledge is needed before you can have wisdom. Knowledge is the individual pieces of the Legos that you use to make the giant helicopter. The word alone gives us knowledge. The word alone gives us joy. It says that he has arranged uh, delightful words, verse 10. God's word makes us well up with gratitude and delight because we know it's the truth and it's from God. His word alone gives us clarity. Gives us clarity. Uh, We have these searched out and arranged portions of Scripture not just the book of Ecclesiastes. What he says about this book is true for all of God's revelation. We have this. His word alone gives us motivation. As the, the one shepherd, he would have a goad. Every shepherd had a goad with a, with a sharp end on it to, to motivate the sheep to move. His word alone gives us ultimate motivation in life. But then it also says in verse 11 that it's like a well-driven nail. What does that mean? His word alone gives us security in this life. What God's word says in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, we can stake our life on it. And what do we do with this thing in verse 12 that don't get too addicted to books? What's he saying there? That reading's wrong? No. That secular literature's wrong? No. But he's ending where he started that there's a lot of people that have done a lot of study about what is life all about. He says, if you keep chasing around different theories and and godless answers to that question, it's a waste, it's a wearying to the body. But not for us, because his word alone gives us a settledness. We know the truth. Treasure the revelation. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, 2 Timothy 3.16. It's God-breathed. A.W. Tozer wrote the... An honest man, an honest woman with an open Bible and a pad and a pencil is sure to find out what is wrong with him very quickly. But let me tell you something. God's word does not just make us book smart. It makes us eternity ready. And then we have the final reminder, which is the ultimate goal of the book. Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. Look at the last two verses. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. 
It's here that we are reminded at the very end that the creator, verse 1 and 6, is also the owner and therefore the judge. Whether a person accepts this or rejects it doesn't change it. It's true for every person. No exceptions. You say, fear of the Lord, what is that? Well, I'll tell you what it is, and it's not, it's not just a morbid call to terror. Now, there should be terror for those that reject God. But it's far more than just a morbid call to terror. It is an invitation, listen, to rescue. It's an invitation to wisdom. It's an invitation to joy. Because you have to see him if you're going to fear him. And you see him coming for you. He didn't have to write Ecclesiastes. But he did. For rescue and for truth. And in holding the truth, you are delighted. There's joy. There's joy in having the truth. And it's interesting. Not only does this book get the reader then and now ready to experience a reconciled relationship with the one who is my judge, a reconciliation that he himself has brought about. He's the one who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5.18. The one we fear is the one we rejoice in. And it's a fear of reverential awe. Wondering why has he come for me to rescue me. To reconcile myself to him. So that I will stand before him someday. Blameless and undefiled and beyond reproach. In the righteousness of his son. How does that happen? The fear of the Lord is nothing more than being aware of God in your moments. He's with you. It places you in awe. And then you see his affections for you and it, that in and of itself affects my decisions on a daily basis. We call this book the Philippians of the Old Testament. That's why it brings joy. If you've accepted him. Have you accepted him? He's written about the end, and the end is escalating from wherever you are in life now towards the end. But I wonder, have you prepared for then yet? Have you prepared for then now? Whether you're young at the sunrise, whether you're at the prime at high noon, or whether you can see the sunset taking shape, what lap are you finishing now? If you're his child, rejoice because you have his wisdom and his word and a confidence at his appearing and at the judgment. But if you haven't accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you haven't been reconciled with God. And I invite you today to come to Christ, tell him that without him, your life is meaningless because sin has ruined it. Ask him to forgive you, and he will. Repent of your sin, and he will cleanse you. And he will give you a new birth and eternal life and a way that makes sense through the rest of this earthly journey and a confident entrance into his presence. Will you accept him today? Lord, thank you. Thank you so much for your kindnesses to us. Thank you for giving us the roadmap and the truth And this journey of several months has come to these final two verses. 
to fear you. To fear you, we have to see you. To obey you, we must know your word. May that be what defines us by your grace as we press into this new week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.